will remain standing and bring out your Bibles once again and turn them to the Gospel of Mark and to chapter 7 this morning. Mark chapter 7, we'll be picking up our reading there and we'll this morning be reading verses 31 through 37. Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. And again, this is God's holy, inerrant, inspired, perfect word from him to us this morning. So let us give heed as we read it. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd, privately he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Let's pray. Our Father, as we have sung, Lord, now we pray, grant us grace, Almighty Lord, to read and to mark your holy word. That it's truths with meekness that we might receive, Lord, we pray, and by its holy precepts, May we live as we look to these things this morning, God. We pray that you would uh, use them uh, for our good. We pray that you would uh, use them to cause us to rejoice in Christ as we come to understand him and his work better. And we ask this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, as we continue here in chapter 7, we are following Jesus and his disciples. Remember, as he has left the region of Galilee, where we have seen him for so long in the Gospel of Mark, and for a short time he has traveled and is traveling in sort of a big loop through Gentile territory, and continuing to bring the, the message of the kingdom of God to those in those areas. And as we saw last week, even ministering to Gentiles in those areas. Last week, remember, uh, Jesus came to the region of Tyre, uh, previously known as Phoenicia, and located in the area where today we find the nation of Lebanon, an area that in its past has been hostile and fought against the Jews in the centuries before Christ and was a a region of extreme paganism and idolatry. And Jesus, even Jesus going there and expanding his ministry into that region would have been very unexpected of him to do. And yet we see that he has. As we saw last week, Jesus in his work as the Messiah and in accordance with the plan of God was sent, as he said, to the Jews first, but not to the Jews exclusively. And Jesus is purposefully, here as he leaves Galilee, the the Jewish area there, and goes into Phoenicia, 
to that area of the Gentiles, to the area of Tyre. He is purposefully making inroads into Gentile territory. And now this morning, this this side trip, if you will, into Gentile territory continues. And in this brief encounter that we're going to read about or that we've read about this morning, we're going to look at, uh, we see more and learn more about the grace of God and the plan of God to bring the gospel to the whole world. Mark begins in our passage here in verse 31 by, by writing, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Now last week he was in the region of Tyre. We're not told how long he stayed there. Uh, it probably wasn't very long, but he leaves here, we learned this morning, and Mark says that he goes through Sidon. Now, that's even farther north than where he was in Tyre. It's a city in a region uh, north of there, and he goes up into that area and then makes a, like a hook around that region and comes around and goes back, we're told, to the Sea of Galilee, but not in the way that he left, not the area that he left. Uh, we're told that he goes to the Sea of Galilee, not to Capernaum, not to Gennesaret, not to Bethsaida, where he's been on that Jewish side of the lake, but he goes around to the east side of the Sea of Galilee, which takes him or leaves, keeps him in Gentile territory. Mark says, in the region of the Decapolis. Now remember, the Decapolis, which is Greek for ten cities, was a sort of confederation of these ten cities scattered around east of the Jordan, east of the Sea of Galilee, that were, uh, that were Gentile, that were Greek. And so Jesus, as he goes here, remains in Gentile territory. And this episode is clearly here another example of Jesus' ministry to Gentile people. And and this with a very important aspect as we're going to see. Now Mark continues by telling us that as in Sire, or in Tyre rather, this event is instigated, this, this healing that we're going to look at, is instigated by someone coming to Jesus, by coming to him and asking his help. Once again, then, we are reminded that Jesus' reputation sort of precedes him. His reputation as a teacher and as a healer has grown very strong and it has grown very widespread. Mark 3, verses 7 and 8, remember, tell us that people from all of these areas had come and met Jesus and were exposed to Jesus in Galilee, but now he is going to those areas. Uh, We saw last week that those from Tyre and Sidon had come to Galilee previously, and so they were perhaps aware of Jesus. We're also told in that same passage in Mark 3 that those from beyond the Jordan had come. And, and seen Jesus. And that could be why he is instantly well known. And here, verse 32 tells us then that they brought to him, we're not told who they are, but they bring to Jesus, we read, a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. Now exactly what the speech impediment is, is not said. The word that's used in the original has a pretty broad range of meaning. It could convey either the speech of a, of a man who was born hearing but then went deaf early in his life and then had trouble uh, speaking. It could be the simple 
guttural sounds of someone who was born deaf and had never learned to speak. It could express sort of the tone of a man's voice, a sort of hollow or guttural speech, or it can even refer to someone who is mute, who has complete lack of speech. So this word can cover a large range of impediments to speech, and we're not given any more, any more detail on that. By the way, that word that is used is a word that's only used twice in all of Scripture, the word that describes his impediment uh, or that he has a speech impediment. And that point, that it's only used twice in Scripture, is going to come back later in the message this morning, so keep it in mind. So we don't know what the speech impediment was. Uh, the word deaf means deaf, so he was deaf. And we read that these people bring him and they begged him, that is, they begged Jesus to lay his hands on him. The idea of, of laying hands on someone and healing them was something they were clearly familiar with. It was a way that Jesus had used in the past to heal some people with. Uh, and so they seek for Jesus to lay his hands on this man. But here then, in contrast to the episode that we looked at last week in Tyre, Remember, Jesus had this conversation with this woman who had come. Here, he doesn't. Uh, Obviously, he couldn't have a conversation with the man, um, but he doesn't have one either with the men who brought him. Rather, we read in this passage here in verse 33 that Jesus took the man aside. He took him aside from the crowd privately. Now, why he did this here as he doesn't do in in other instances, again, we're not told. Perhaps it's to give privacy to the man. Remember, he didn't come really of his own accord. We don't know whether he was fine with coming. Certainly, he probably would have been if he knew there was a chance that Jesus could heal him. Uh, But it could be that Jesus didn't want to embarrass him, and so he takes him aside. Perhaps he didn't want to make a spectacle of his healing of the man in this area. You'll see at the end that once again, Jesus very strongly tells them after the healing not to spread this around. And so it could be that he wants to do this more privately. But what it does show is that Jesus is singling out this man and is demonstrating that this man is important to him by taking him aside and dealing with him personally. Something, that's something that Jesus always did. Even with the, the woman, remember, in the crowd who said, boy, if I can just just touch his robe, I'll be healed. And even that happens, and and Jesus says, who touched me? And the disciples say, are you kidding? Look at all these people. How do you know somebody touched you? But he finds her, and he calls her out, and he commends her faith and assures her of her healing in Mark 5, 34. So Jesus is always concerned with the people who come. They're not merely uh, check a box that he did a healing. These are people, real people that Jesus really cares about. And, of course, that's something true of those, each and every one of us who come to him. Whoever comes to him, he will never cast away, we read. He will never deny. He will never eject. He will never reject. He will never disregard. He cares for those that come to him. And every need of yours, Christian, and you yourself, Be assured that you are a great concern to the one who gave up his life for you. 
and bore your sins and bore your guilt and bore the punishment that you deserved. Christ loves you and Christ is concerned for you and for the the things uh, that are concerning in your life. He did all of this, in fact, because you are beloved to Christ. And so Jesus takes this man aside. And then Mark describes that Jesus goes through a a series of, of motions, a series of expressions here. And they're, they're very interesting if we look at them just briefly. So verse, the first one is that Jesus takes the man aside, showing concern, showing intention. Then Mark says that he put his fingers into his ears. Now immediately this shows us that, that Jesus is not resistant to physically touching a person, especially a Gentile. The Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Jewish rabbis would never do that. But Jesus will. Remember the Jews, or to the Jews, the Gentiles were unclean, ritually unclean, and to touch them would render them ritually unclean, and so they would not touch them. But Jesus, of course, knows that this Gentile man is no more unclean than the most rigorous of the Jews. And in compassion and and in care, he is not reticent in any way to touch this man or any man. Now this touch that he gives to this man, putting his fingers in his ears, is a a pretty familiar thing to do. Why does he do it? Well, he probably does it to explain to this deaf man that he can't explain to with words that he, Jesus, is going to address the problem in his ears. He's going to address his deafness. But that's not even the extent of of what Jesus does. Mark says next that after spitting, touched his tongue. So Jesus spits, probably spits on his hand, and then takes some of the saliva and touches the man's tongue with it. See, Jesus is also going to heal his speech. But why does he do it that way? Likely because in that area at that time, there was a belief that certain people had the ability to heal, and at times the way they would communicate that healing power was through saliva, through doing just what Jesus has done. And so perhaps here Jesus is using this approach that this man would recognize to know, again, what Jesus is going to do. And here as well... Jesus, again, shows that ritual uncleanness is not on the level of God's moral law because spit, spittle, to use an old word, was considered an unclean bodily fluid to the Jews. But Jesus spits on his hand and touches the man's tongue. Next, verse 34 says he looks up to heaven, showing the man from where this healing is going to come. Then Mark says, interestingly, it says, he sighed. Well, that's quite a detail. It's another one of those minuscule details that indicates that this is coming from an eyewitness account. Whose? Peter's, as we've talked about. Jesus sighed here. Remember it at Lazarus' grave, we read that Jesus wept. 
And at this healing, he sighs. Probably as he's reminded, as he meets this man, as he confronts this man, um, confronted again and sighs because of the physical effects of sin. In fact, and we'll see in the next chapter that Jesus will sigh deeply in his heart, it says, over man's unbelief. So as Jesus is confronted with, with all of this, the unbelief and the physical manifestations of the fall, as he prepares to heal this man, it strikes him, just as the death of Lazarus did. And there Jesus wept, here Jesus sighs. And having done all that, we read in verse 34 that Jesus says to him, Ephatha. That is, Mark again translates the Aramaic word for his Gentile readers. It means be opened. And notice something here. Mark says that Jesus didn't just say Ephatha, but the text says that he said it to him, to the deaf man. See, he did all these other actions to non-verbally let this man know what's going to happen. And now he speaks to him. And it's probable that in that instant, the man's ears were open. It is likely the first word that the man heard was, be opened, coming from Jesus in this encounter. Perhaps it was the first word he ever heard. Like I said, we don't know if this man was born deaf or if he became deaf. And Mark records then the result of that word, that single word by Christ in verse 35. He says, and his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Notice the language Mark uses here. He didn't just hear, he didn't just speak, but it says his ears were opened and his tongue was released. It's more like the language of this man being liberated. This man being released, it's not just the language of a, of a healing, but it's the language of liberation for this man. The opening of what was shut, the releasing of what was bound. And one other wonderful detail here in the record. Mark doesn't say that as a result that he spoke. I mean, it does, but it adds something to that. It says that he spoke, verse 35 at the end, it says, he spoke plainly. Again, this is just what happens when Jesus heals people. He heals instantly. He heals completely. This man did not then have to learn how to talk, to learn again how to talk, or to learn for a first time how to talk. He spoke plainly as a result of this word of Jesus to him. When Jesus heals the lame, they don't just become not lame anymore, but we read that they immediately get up and walk. And he tells them, get up, take your bed up, and go. And they do. Not just are they able now to walk, but the atrophy of the muscles is instantly reversed. Those who, who never knew how to walk, walk. And here, a man who either had never spoken or who had never spoken well because of this, now spoke plainly. When Jesus heals, here during his earthly ministry, he heals completely. He heals immediately. And we see that in the record. 
Now, before we go on and look at the last point of this narrative and and draw some things from it, let's just take a moment to think about the means of the healing itself. We've gone through the things that Jesus did, some admittedly strange things, though they make more sense as we have gone through and understood them a little more. But this shows that Jesus is not tied to just one way of healing, that everything has to be done the same way every time. That demonstrates his ability, his his power, his sovereignty in his choice of means to heal. And it reminds us that it is, in fact, not the means that he uses there at all, not the motions that he goes through, not the speaking or the touching and the various things that he does. It is not those things that affect the healing, but it's the sovereign power of God. He touches this man, touches his ears, touches his tongue, but he doesn't always do that, does he? The man in this situation is standing before him, But the object of Jesus' healings are not always like that. In fact, if we look through the Gospels, we see quite a variety of means that Jesus uses to heal people. Here he puts his fingers in the man's ears and spits and puts it on his tongue and then speaks. He will do something similar but unique in the next chapter when he heals a blind man by again spitting, but he puts it on the man's eyes and lays hands on him twice. That'll be in Mark 8. In another instance, Jesus, again using spit, makes mud, you know this story, and puts it on a man's eyes, and the man receives his sight. Sometimes Jesus touches those that he is healing, puts hands on them, Matthew 8 and Matthew 20, Luke 13, other places. At other times, the people seeking healing touch him. Mentioned the lady in the crowd who did that. Also in Matthew 14, we read that people brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak and all who touched him were healed. That's another way. At other times, there's no physical contact at all. Jesus merely speaks to the person. As he said to the the man, remember, who his friends had torn up the ceiling and lowered him down uh, to, to be in front of Jesus when there wasn't room for him to get in? Jesus just said to him, get up, take up your mat, and go home. Didn't touch him at all. And sometimes the person who is being healed isn't even present. The servant of the Roman centurion Uh, The story that we looked at last week when Jesus is in Tyre. The woman's daughter is at home. Her mom comes to Jesus, and Jesus at the end of that encounter says, Go your way, the demon has left your daughter. And she gets home and finds that that's exactly true. It happens again in John 4 with with the son of the nobleman. Jesus says, Your son lives. So different ways that Jesus uses. He is not tied down to any way. He uses the means that he determines. And I should mention that it's not only in these supernatural ways, in all of their varied details, that God heals. 
as God works not only directly through supernatural healings like we see in the scriptures here, but he is also the God of second causes. And his sovereignty and his power is seen in him working through second causes, all of which reflect back to him, all which terminate on him as the first cause. And so it is no less an act of of God, no less an act of healing when we cut our hand and a few days later it's better. Or when we catch a cold or we catch a flu or other diseases and our, our immune system that God has built into us eradicates it from our body. It is not less attributable to the work of God when those bodies need help. And we're able to receive that through medication or procedures or surgeries. Again, that God has blessed this world with in his common grace that we are able to do that. God heals through all of those means. And we should give thanks to him in all of those situations, in all of those means that he has made available to us. We should be thankful for that innate healing power of our bodies. And we should not despise those things that God in his providence has given to us. And let me add lastly that we do, in addition to those things, we do believe that God is still able and still does heal without any of those means. Directly, miraculously, just like he did here. When and where and how he decides to. Not through faith healers, though God is free to work through them as well if he desires, but primarily just through answering the prayers of the saints. The saints interceding for one another, lifting up one another in prayer before a holy and sovereign and powerful God. Directly or through second causes, we believe that God heals And if he chooses not to heal us here, he has promised us a place where death and sickness will not intrude. Where all of us who trust in Christ will live in glorified bodies with sound minds, perfect forever by God's grace. But here on the east side of the Sea of Galilee in the first century, Jesus has healed this man instantly, completely. Verse 35, and his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And then verse 36 says that Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Once again, we see Jesus running up against this. Again, Jesus tells the person here, tells the crowd as well who had witnessed this healing, not to spread it around. And we've talked before why that might be. And as before, and as we've talked about before, they directly disobey his charge and spread the news of what has taken place. In fact, it says the more he charged them, the more they proclaimed it, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Now, we might and should make note here that 
there is never an excuse to disobey a command of God. But we can understand how they might, why they might. Uh, and we might note here that while they have given, been given a charge not to proclaim what Christ has done for them here, beloved, that we have been given no such charge. That we are, in fact, too, as I think Peter puts it, to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We are to spread that abroad. But these here, for this reason, or for reasons that we've talked about, as I said in the past, are charged and commanded by Jesus not to make this known, but they do. And so, they're disobeying a direct command of Christ. And like I said, while there's never an excuse for that, we can understand how they might when they see what they have seen. In fact, Mark tells us in verse 37 that they were astonished beyond measure and that that's why they did it. Astonished beyond measure. An interesting little phrase, an emphatic little phrase there that means something like they were super aboundingly, exceedingly filled with amazement to the point of being overwhelmed. As those words are kind of put together in that way. Now, I'm going to leave off saying anything about the last of, of verse 37 here for now. We'll, we'll come back to it. That'll be our conclusion. But first I want to look, step back and look at the bigger picture of what is going on in this passage. And there is a bigger picture. There's something that Mark, as he puts this by the inspiration of the Spirit, as he puts this here, that, that he is wanting to teach us more than just of a wonderful, magnificent healing that took place through Jesus. What do you think the most often word used in the Bible is? Don't count words like a or an or the or any of those. If you think about it for a moment, you probably think that the word God would qualify. And you'd be right about that. Pretty much right. The word Lord is the most used word in the Bible. Between 7,000 and 8,000 times in the ESV, it's used 7,956 times. That'll be on the test. God, the word God is second, only 4,000, 4,600 times in the ESV. There are some words that are used many times like that. There are some used that are only used, used once or twice, a few times. Some that are used only once. We have a cool-sounding word for, for those. They're called hapax legomenon. That's a Greek word for being said once. In fact, this word that we uh, looked at here, uh, let's see, they, 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 they were astonished beyond measure. That word that, that has such a full uh, feeling to it, a full definition of it, that's a hapax legomenon. It's only used there. Now certainly the number of times a word occurs can bear on its importance, but it is not only common words that are important. And when you find a word that's used rarely, particularly when you find a word that it only occurs twice, once in the Old Testament, once in the New Testament, that should at least make us sit up and pay attention. And that's the case in this passage. Go back to verse 32. Remember I mentioned that the word that's translated speech impediment was only used twice in the Bible? 
One time is here, of course. The other time is in the Greek version of the Old Testament of Isaiah 35. The context for Isaiah 35 is Isaiah 34. Well, that's insightful. You can write that one down as well. We read Isaiah 34 for our Old Testament reading today. Chapter 34 of Isaiah is the the crescendo of a series of judgments that Isaiah gives against the various nations of that day, including Israel. It was a proclamation of God's judgment that was to come, a proclamation that, as we read it, was devastating in its harshness, in the imagery of it. God was going to lay waste to their land, the lands of the nations of the earth. He's going to slay their people. He's going to make the streams into deserts. He's going to take the land away from princes and make it an enduring place of thorns and jackals and hyenas and all manner of wild animals. Chapter 34 is a picture and a warning of judgment, of judgments in history that pretend the final judgment of God. The final judgment of evil. But then comes chapter 5. And just as we read chapter 34 and then sang God in the gospel of his son and that juxtaposition was somewhat harsh, it's the same way when you come to chapter 35 of Isaiah. Chapter 35 is the mirror image of chapter 34. It speaks about the blessing of God shown against the backdrop of judgment. And it speaks of the Uh, reversal of fortunes, if you will, for those whose God is the Lord. The devastations of chapter 34 are replaced by gladness and joy and singing and glory, the glory of God's blessing. It's described in the opening verses of chapter 35. Let me just read a few verses. This comes right after what we read earlier, remember. It says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The deserts shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Fear not, it says, behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Quite a different picture. And this salvation is inaugurated, this salvation that he's talking about here, inaugurated at the first coming of Christ. And it will be gloriously consummated at the second coming. And what will be the sign of this? What will be the reality of this blessing, this this turning, the coming of the blessing of God? Listen to verses 5 and 6 of Isaiah 35. It says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. There in in those verses, in verse 6, 
is our term from Mark 7. In its only other appearance, where it says there in Isaiah 35, the tongue of the mute. That's the same word that's used only one other time in the Bible in Mark chapter, or in our passage in Mark chapter 7. The same word which Mark translates as a speech impediment. It is God who will come to open the ears of the deaf and to release the tongues of the ones unable to speak in connection with the blessings that he will give. And this, of course, points not just to physical maladies, but it points to our spiritual condition and to what Christ has done. We were deaf to the Word of God. The judgment of God, the state of a fallen man, is that he will not hear with his ears or with his heart. In fact, you know, Jesus often concludes his teachings with the admonition, those who have ears to hear, let him hear. But those ears are not naturally open. The wicked, the psalmist says, are like the deaf adder that stops its ear. From Psalm 58. We do not hear. And our tongues do not work rightly. We do not speak plainly. We have a speech impediment. Our tongues do not speak the praise of God, but Paul says that the poison of asps is under our lips. Like Isaiah himself experienced and and proclaimed earlier in his book, we are all people of unclean lips. And here Mark is saying that a great healing and something more has taken place in the ministry of Jesus. In fact, John the Baptist, at one point, sends messengers to Jesus and says, are you really the one that we were waiting for? Remember Jesus' answer? It goes like this. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard, that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. In other words, those are the signs, as Isaiah prophesied, and they're fulfilled in me. Yes, I am doing these things that Isaiah said would happen, therefore I am the one. And as Mark records this miracle, the fact that he says it here in this event, in this place, to this man says something especially wonderful. Because, you see, Jesus has undoubtedly healed other deaf people in his ministry and other mute people among the multitudes that that he's healed in his ministry. But Mark records this one. And Mark's the only one that records this event, by the way. This miracle, this healing, with this clear allusion to this promise from Isaiah 35, God's coming salvation takes place where? It takes place outside of Israel. It takes place in Gentile territory, in a Gentile region, to a Gentile man. So again, we see in this that the Lord is even now showing that salvation is to the Jews first, but also to the Gentiles. This is a revelation of the mystery of God's plan 
of the, the coming time when the gates would be thrown wide open in the days of the apostles and in the book of Acts and beyond. And the wonder of this healing and the record of this healing is not just that it was done, which itself glorifies God, but that it was done among the Gentiles, to a Gentile. Which is a great and a wonderful thing. Which brings us now to the end of this record, to verse 37, and to the reaction of the people. Specifically to their proclamation in verse 37. It says that they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. He has done all things well. Isn't that a perfect description of how God works? Whether it is the creation of the world, in the book of Genesis, where at every point God saw that what? It was good to the Father's evaluation of the Son. And he said, you are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. In creation, in redemption, he has done all things well. Christian, your salvation has been accomplished fully and completely and without lack by God. Your sanctification that Paul told the Ephesians is a good work that God has begun and that he will continue. The, uh, the Philippians, I'm sorry, did they say Ephesians? The Philippians, that he will continue to the last day. All good, all best, all perfect. Indeed, beloved, he has done all things well. He has done all things well. Say it with me. He has done all things well. Let's pray. Our God, indeed, you have done all things well. Indeed, you are a gracious God. Indeed, you are a powerful God. And indeed, you have, by your grace, chosen to bring salvation to those who will trust in your Son. And we thank you, Lord, that we have this picture this morning of that fact and how it comes not only to the Jews but also to us, to the Gentiles. We pray, Lord, that we would rejoice in what Christ has done and is doing and will do. We pray that we would rejoice in what you have done, O God. We pray that we would rejoice in the knowledge that you have done all things well. We pray that that would be in our minds and in our hearts every day, in every situation. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.